You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So because we've skipped ahead, uh, for those of us who have been with us throughout the season of Epiphany, we've skipped from the end of chapter 6 to kind of late in chapter 9. And and so briefly, I'm going to catch us up on on what we've missed in Luke's gospel, just to kind of give us context for where we are. So at the end of chapter 6, Jesus finishes this long teaching kind of on on the ethics of his kingdom. And then in chapter 7, Jesus has an encounter with some of John the Baptist's disciples. And, And he tells them to go to John and tell them that his ministry, that Jesus' ministry, is the coming of God's kingdom in power, and and that the prophecies of old are being fulfilled in in the life of Jesus. And then in chapter 8, Jesus shows himself to be the greater Noah, as he not only crosses the waters in a great storm, but shows that he has power over the storm and commands it to stop. Then he spends some time casting out demons, teaching parables, and people are beginning to wonder who this man is in relationship to God's word, in relationship to the history of Israel. And then we see a couple of times in chapter 9 of Luke, before this text, there are two times that, that it's mentioned that some people in the region are beginning to wonder if maybe Jesus is Elijah or one of the other great prophets of Israel's past come back because they're seeing his life and his ministry and he's, he's doing all of these incredible things. He's telling storms to stop. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's teaching God's people, God's word faithfully and boldly. And so they're wondering who he is. Maybe he's one of the prophets of old having returned to, to speak a word to God's people, but, but Peter has an interaction with Jesus in, in which Peter says, no, Jesus, I don't think that you're one of the prophets of old. He, he says, you are the Christ of God, meaning that, that Peter believes that Jesus isn't just Elijah having returned, but that, that Jesus is the consummate prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the one that they've all been waiting for. He doesn't just think he's another prophet from the past. But it's significant that people do. Because throughout Israel, throughout the history of Israel, this nation has had many prophets, many men who have come to speak God's word to them. And really there were two prophets in Israel's history who are recognized as the greatest prophets. Moses and Elijah. And these are the prophets that Jesus is most being compared to. And it's important that we know a little bit about Moses and Elijah because without knowing about their stories, we will never understand what's happening here in Luke chapter 9. Moses was the prophet who led Israel in their exodus. In your Bible, there's a book titled Exodus, and it's all about this event. And it's the most important event in the history of of the Israelite people, because they were enslaved in Egypt under an evil king, the Pharaoh. And Moses was raised up by God to see to it that God's people were set free 
from slavery in Egypt. And the Exodus really took place. There was a time when God told Moses that he was going to come and bring judgment on the Egyptians in the form of, of all of the firstborn sons in the, in the whole country of Egypt. There was going to be a night when God was going to send an angel of death to put to death the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. It would be a judgment. It would cause chaos. But God told Moses to tell his people that if they marked their doorpost, with the blood of a lamb, that the angel of death would pass by their house. And so this night happened, and the angel of death is coming through Israel, but all of the people of Israel have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and death passes them by. They are passed over. And then there's all of this chaos, and while there's this chaos happening, Moses lifts his people out of Egypt, and they, they leave Egypt. They flee in the night. And they're chased by Pharaoh and his army. And God parts the Red Sea to be dry land. And so they pass through the waters of the Red Sea without being harmed. And then behind them, Pharaoh and his army are coming, but the waters collapse on Pharaoh. Judgment falls upon the wickedness of Pharaoh and his army and The people of Israel are freed from slavery and eventually Moses leads them through the wilderness all the way to this promised land of Canaan. Moses administers to them the covenant of the law in the wilderness and so he's this great prophet. But Elijah was a prophet who came many generations after Moses and he was generally understood as the new Moses, the new great prophet. He was known for trusting in the Lord and having defeated the prophets of false gods who were oppressing the people of Israel, but God used Elijah to have victory over Israel's oppression like he used Moses to have victory over Israel's oppression. So Moses was the consummate lawgiver as a prophet of Israel, but Elijah was the consummate prophet. And in essence, Moses and Elijah really represent God's revealed truth to the people of Israel. The Jewish people even called their scriptures the law and the prophets. And so Moses and Elijah represent all that God has revealed to them. And they had one more thing in common that's really significant for this text. And that's that in their lives, both Moses and Elijah would meet with God. And they would have these intimate interactions. And both of them at one point went up on a mountain and desired to see God's glory. They desired to see God in all of his glory. But both times, God would not allow them to see God's glory in full. Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, look, I'll let my glory pass you by but I'm going to cover your face until you can only see my back. And that's not to say that God has a a human back or human qualities. God is spirit, but it it means that God said, I'm just going to show you part of my glory. But he tells Moses, if you saw all of my glory, you wouldn't live through it. I'm too holy. I'm too glorious for you, a sinful man, to look upon me and live. And Elijah had a similar interaction with God in which God's glory showed him God showed him his glory but Elijah had to cover his face with his robe so that he wouldn't look upon it fully and die 
When Moses saw God's glory, even in part, his face began shining like the sun. And when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because the people of Israel couldn't even look at his face. It was so radiant and glorious. And that was just from having seen God's glory. And so when the people start saying that Jesus might be Elijah or he might be Moses or one of these great prophets return, they're thinking in the terms of Moses and Elijah. They're thinking in the terms of of a prophet who might free God's people from oppression as the Jewish people are being oppressed by the Roman authorities. Maybe Jesus will be the one who will restore full possession of the land. And so as his popularity grows, he's being understood in terms of Moses and Elijah. And today we're going to look at this text that's going to give us more clarity about who Jesus is and how he might be like Moses and Elijah, but not Moses or Elijah. The text begins by saying this. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. This is verse 28. And so the first thing that we see is is Luke says about eight days. And he says eight days for a reason because if it's about, he could have said nine days or seven days or something like this, but he says eight days. And he's making a point in this. He's making a point because God created the earth in, in seven days. And so an eighth day might be symbolic of a new creation. It's at least symbolic of a new beginning, as the eighth day is the turning over into a new week. So Luke is subtly pointing us to a new creation that might be revealed on this mountain. And they're going on a mountain, which is the place throughout all of the scriptures that we see God revealing himself. This is where Elijah and Moses had these intimate encounters with God. And so maybe we're going to see God's glory on this mountain. Maybe something really important is going to take place. And indeed it does. In verse 29 it says this, And as he was praying, this being Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly white. So this man who people have been comparing to Moses and Elijah goes up on a mountain like Moses and Elijah and his face starts glowing like Moses' face did when he saw God's glory. But Jesus' face isn't glowing from having seen God's glory. God's glory didn't pass them by on the mountain, but rather his, his glory is shining from within. It's, it's something different than what Moses experienced. The text says that he's being transformed or transfigured. His appearance is changing. His clothes look different. And then the text gets even more interesting, even stranger. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him. Surprise, surprise, it's Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. I said exodus there because Really, departure is a very unfortunate translation that we have. Um, the, the word in Greek is pronounced exodus, and the word 
It means exodus, and Luke is using the word to refer to Israel's exodus, and so why they chose to use the word departure, I don't know, but, but they're speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So now the, this account is getting really weird. Jesus is praying, his, his face starts glowing, then these two prophets who have been gone from the earth for hundreds of years show up and, and they're talking about Jesus' exodus. Jesus is going to accomplish some sort of exodus in Jerusalem. And, and Moses and Elijah seem to know about this. They knew what was coming. They're discussing it. And, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about why that matters, why the word exodus matters, what it is that Luke is talking about, what's going to take place in Jerusalem. But for now, I want us to consider something else. Here we have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, on a mountain of God's revelation. Both of these men have been here before. But two things about this are different. First, they're in their glorified heavenly forms, having been gone from the earth for centuries, having been taken up into the heavenly places for centuries. And as such, it seems that they have knowledge of what is to come. They have knowledge of what Jesus is going to accomplish that Peter, John, and James don't yet have. But the second thing is one that I find even more interesting. In both of Moses and Elijah's lives, they were at one point on a mountain talking with God and begging to see his glory. And God only revealed to them his glory in part. But now they're on this mountain looking fully at the glorified face of Jesus, God in flesh. So this is what they had longed for in all of their earthly lives. This is what the hope of all of their ministry was, to see God's glory in full, to see God's promises come to pass. And Jesus has invited them here to see what they've longed for. He's invited them to come and, and look upon his glory, along with Peter and John and James. And he's doing this in order to teach these three disciples, Peter, John, and James, something very important. And that is that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. As Jesus is glorified and transfigured before Moses and Elijah, Jesus is communicating to his disciples that I am all of God's promises having come to pass. I am what the prophets promised. I am what the law was pointing toward. I am what the exodus out of Egypt was all about. And I've invited Moses and Elijah here so that you might understand them. And, and then the text goes on. It says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. We can't dive into every nook and cranny of this text because we would end up talking for weeks, 
but, but there's something significant even in the fact that the disciples were sleeping. Um, we're going to see them sleeping again in the Garden of Gethsemane as we approach Jesus' death. And so that tells us something. But when they wake up, something more interesting happens. And that's that Peter sees Moses. And then he sees Elijah, the new Moses. And then he sees Jesus, the greater Moses. And he recognizes how important this is. He celebrates it and he has this idea that they should build tents on the mountain, that they should build tabernacles. That's what the word tent means, is, is tabernacle. So Peter's suggesting that they celebrate the Feast of Booths, which if you're not familiar with like, Jewish celebrations and, and feasts and, and the seasonal calendar, the Feast of Booths was a time in which the people of Israel would build tents or, or, or booths or tabernacles, and they would spend time celebrating the exodus, that God had delivered them from Egypt and, and that God sustained them in the wilderness as they dwelled as nomads living in tents and as God would have his tabernacle where he would meet with Moses and it was the prefigure to the temple and this is where God's glory would dwell, was in the tabernacle. And so Peter's saying, we've got to celebrate this. We've got to celebrate that we've got Moses and the new Moses and the greater Moses here. It's time to build some tents and, and celebrate the exodus. Celebrate how God has been faithful to us. But Luke says that Peter's suggestion implies that he didn't really understand fully what was going on. It seems like a good impulse, but Luke tells us that Peter was wrong. And the next verse is going to show us why. Verse 34 says, and as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So the tents that Peter spoke of were tabernacles. And the tabernacle, or as it's sometimes called, the tent of meeting, was what preceded the temple in Jerusalem. And in the wilderness, after the exodus from Egypt, this is where God's presence would rest. And when God's presence was in the tabernacle, a cloud would hover over the tabernacle. And Moses would go into the tabernacle and meet with the Lord while the cloud was hovering over it. And the cloud rested over the tent of meeting. And so Peter is suggesting that they erect tents to remember those days. But then what we see is they didn't need a tent for God's cloud of presence to come and rest over them. Because Jesus is himself the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the true tent of meeting. He's the true tabernacle, the true temple where God's presence dwells fully. And so it, it, he doesn't need a tent to enter into. He doesn't need a, a building to enter into because God's presence is fully resting in the person of Jesus. God's temple is changing with Jesus. No more will God's presence rest in the center of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, but it will rest in His Son. And through His Spirit, it will rest in His people's hearts. And so God's new temple will be built upon the foundation of Jesus, with Peter and James and John being its pillars. God's dwelling place will be among His people after Jesus accomplishes 
his exodus in Jerusalem. Peter and James and John are getting a foretaste of what is to come when the church is the new tabernacle of God, the new temple of God. And then Luke writes this in verse 35 and 36. He says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The words coming from the cloud, this is my son. These are the same words that came out of the heavens when Jesus was baptized a few chapters earlier. But God says something at the end of this. this he says, listen to him. So he's not just reminding them of Jesus' baptism. He's not just reminding the disciples that Jesus is God's son, but listen to him calls to mind words from Moses that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the prophet that Moses promised the people of Israel. He's the greater Moses, and he will lead a greater exodus even than Moses did. See, Moses had the people of Israel mark their households with the blood of a lamb, and that would save them from death in Egypt. And he led the people through the waters of the Red Sea, and he mediating, mediated the covenant of the law to them while they were on the way to the promised land of Canaan. And this is the exodus that, that Peter and James and John are familiar with. But what is the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish? In what ways will it be like Moses, but better than Moses? Later in chapter 9, in verse 30, 51, we're going to see a verse that says this. It says, When the days drew near... For him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. There's coming a time in this Gospel very soon that Jesus is going to be wholly concerned with going to Jerusalem to accomplish this exodus. And when he gets to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. He's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. And in his crucifixion, Jesus' blood will be better than the blood of the lambs that were over the doorposts in Egypt. And anyone who chooses to cover themselves with the blood of Jesus will be saved fully and finally on the day of God's judgment. And then Jesus will be resurrected and he will ascend into the heavens. And when he does that, he's going to pour out his spirit into the hearts of his followers, thereby giving them new life and freedom from sin and death and shame and guilt and sorrow, which is an even greater emancipation than freedom from slavery in Egypt. Moses led his people through the waters of the Red Sea 
to a wilderness where they were no longer enslaved, but Jesus will lead his people through the waters of baptism, leaving their former slavery to sin and death and all of its strongholds behind and raised to new life. And then he's giving his people the power of his spirit to lead them through the wilderness of this life sustaining them along the way, but also allowing them to take part in turning this wilderness into a beautiful and tamed garden of God. God's people under the new ministry and because of the new exodus of Jesus will arrive at a far better promised land than Canaan. We won't arrive simply in an earthly dwelling place that will experience prosperity, we will arrive in new heavens and new earth with endless prosperity, with endless joy, with endless freedom. So the question becomes, how do we take part in this exodus of Jesus? How can we be sure that we will be among the people that Jesus leads into the promised land and frees from slavery to sin and death? Something takes place on the mountain of Jesus' transfiguration that might seem really strange, especially if we're more familiar with the Old Testament, because Peter and James and John looked at the complete glory of Jesus, and they didn't die. Moses was told in his life that if he saw the face of God, that he would not live through it. He was a sinful man. And God's glory and holiness were just too much for him to see. He was, so, so what is it that allows Peter and James and John to live through it? See, Jesus was showing his three closest disciples what his kingdom is going to be like. He was revealing to them the reality of what his exodus will accomplish. The best news in this account of Peter and James of John going up on this mountain and seeing the glorified face of Jesus is that Jesus allowed them to see it and live. These were imperfect men. They were sinful men, as sinful as Moses. They didn't have perfect understanding of what Jesus was going to accomplish. They didn't know what he was going to do when he got to Jerusalem. They didn't even know what God was going to call them to. These were men who probably ascended this mountain with doubts. Men who were going to be disobedient and even deny Jesus in the coming days and months. These were men from humble backgrounds. Men who were prone to selfishness. And still, Jesus chose to take them up on the mountain to show them the miracle of his glory. He took them up on the mountain to show them the fulfillment of all things. The things that Moses and Elijah only hoped to see. Before the work accomplished by Jesus in Jerusalem, even the great prophets could not see God's glory. They couldn't see it and live through it. But now, these simple men of Peter and James and John look upon Jesus face to face as he's transfigured into a glorified, heavenly, future version of himself, and they live 
but they don't live unchanged. In fact, there's a sense in which they look upon the glory of Jesus and die. When we see the glories of Christ revealed to us in such a way that we believe Him fully, that we trust in His work to save us from slavery to sin and death and sorrow and shame, when we see that fully, we die to our old selves. The parts of us that were enslaved to sin, the parts of us that were formerly unpresentable before God, the parts of us that were formerly unable to experience and see God's glory and truth and His grace in full, those things die when we behold the glories of Christ. And we're given new spiritual lives in which we get to look upon God's glory and allow it to shine forth. The good news of Jesus' gospel is that the glory of Jesus is available to us regardless of how we are when we come to Him. We can ascend to the holy mountain of God like the three disciples in this passage with all of the baggage of our failures, all of our sinfulness, all of our brokenness, our anxiety, our pride, our selfishness, our depression, our family history. And we can look upon the face of the one who has purchased our freedom. We can look upon the one who has bought us, loved us, and is inviting to lead us into a promised land in which death and sin will be no more. In which shame and sorrow will be no more. In which guilt will no longer reign. In which anxiety will have no power over us. In which depression will not define us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about this very thing. He's, he's talking about the way Moses had to veil his face when he came down from the mountain after seeing God's glory. Because the Israelites couldn't see it. They couldn't even bear to look at Moses' face. But now, under a new covenant, in a new covenant of grace in Jesus, Paul says this. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we come into relationship with God through Jesus, when we trust in Him to be Savior and Lord, we can approach and behold the beauty of God through the Spirit of God which dwells within us. We can come to Jesus as sinful as we are, as broken as we are, as messy as we are, and still experience the freedom of His exodus. We can carry all of those things up the mountain of His transfiguration and experience freedom through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And in those times, we get to taste of heavenly things, the good and perfect, delightful things of God, with joy and happiness and, and thanksgiving. And over time, Paul says that we will be transformed to look more and be more like the glorified Jesus that Peter and John and James saw on the mountain. 
there's only really one time in the New Testament other than the accounts that talk about Jesus transfiguring before the disciples that the word transfigured is used. And that's in this text, in 2 Corinthians. Paul literally writes that we will be transfigured from one degree of glory to another. When Jesus was transfigured, he was changed, he was transformed, he looked different, he took on new characteristics, heavenly, glorious characteristics, radiant characteristics, marvelous ones. And so Paul is telling us that through relationship with God and by the power of his spirit, that we can be transfigured like Jesus to be more glorious and more heavenly, to be more beautiful to behold, to be treasured by God, will be made day by day transfigured from one degree of glory to another. And so Jesus simply invites us to come. He invites us to come and behold Him. Come and gaze upon His glory. He invites us to do that in his word where he shows himself to be glorious and beautiful and righteous and loving and merciful and kind and faithful. And as we look upon him in the Bible, we'll be transfigured. He invites us to behold him in his creation as we see his wisdom and his beauty and his thoughtfulness. And as we do that, we'll be transfigured. He invites us to behold his glory in one another, celebrating each other's gifts, strengths, areas of growth. And as we do that, we'll be transfigured. God invites us to behold his glory even when we've sinned and failed. He invites us to come and to ascend to his holy mountain, and to view all of his glory, and knowing that his exodus is our only hope. But it's a sure hope. It's a faithful hope. And when we do that, we'll be transfigured from one degree of glory to the next. And so as we prepare to enter into the season of Lent, let's do so with Jesus' glory in mind with the understanding of his invitation to come and behold him, to come and take part in the freedom that he offers through his death and resurrection and ascension. Because in the Lenten season, we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about our mortality and our frailty and our sinfulness and our shortcomings. And it might be tempting to believe that when we arrive on Easter Sunday, that we are so far from God that we cannot partake in his resurrection. But remember that Peter and James and John were so far, so sinful, so unknowing, and Jesus still invited them to the mountain to know, to see. So let us, like Jesus, set our face toward Jerusalem. For the next 50 days, let us walk through the wilderness season of Lent, knowing that there will be serious suffering along the way, but in the end we will celebrate the full freedom that has been won for us by our great King, by our loving God. And this morning, if you've yet to place your face, faith in Christ, if you've yet to behold His glory, 
I would invite you to consider the simple but beautiful reality that God desires to show you his immeasurable grace, his immeasurable glory, that he desires to provide you with endless joy and freedom and life and remove from you the reproach and guilt and sorrow that your failures and life's burdens have given you. Whether or not you're a believer in this room or not, I would invite you to consider that, that wherever you are in life, whatever situation you might be in, regardless of how sinful and guilty you might feel, that God invites you to behold the glory of his Son and be forever changed by it. That is how much love our God has for us, that he would invite us as dirty and messy as we are, to ascend to his holy mountain simply to show us how good he is and the freedom that he's provided for us. Let's consider that as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, you are good and glorious and lovely, and I pray that we would see that. By the power of your spirit, would you show us the majesty of your son and that as we approach your table this morning, that we would eat and drink of your glory, that you would transfigure us in that. That we would leave this gathering this morning having been transfigured from one degree of glory to another, having been changed by your grace and your goodness. Would you show us how majestic you are? Would you sustain us through the Lenten season? And would we be a people who have set our face toward Jerusalem? Not fasting and considering our sin and mortality without hope, but knowing that in Jerusalem a great exodus is going to be accomplished and that we will be a free people. Would you give us a taste of your promised land of rest this morning as we taste of your son's body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.